unto light, lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning and namaste everybody. By everybody of course I mean our vast virtual audience which is spread across the world and I, and I realize in many places it's not morning. Uh, here we have just a handful of four or five people. Um, Diane is here to ask questions, read out the questions we have received from the uh, internet audience. Uh, I've been away for about seven or eight months, so over this period of time, a lot of questions have come in, a lot of questions have accumulated, and I feel it's sort of bad that I cannot deal with all the questions that I cannot answer each and everyone's questions. Uh, but we, can, we have made a selection. With the help of our team, we have made a selection of certain questions which we will respond to. The questions are relevant to everybody. So while you may not have asked this particular question, the answer to that question may strike a chord deep within you. So it's good to listen to the questions, not to be eagerly waiting, when is my question going to be answered? Uh, listen to the questions and listen to the answers. The truth is very simple and it's only one truth. It's being um, taught. It's coming to us in different ways. So the way this will go is, I will ask Diane to read out a question and respond to it and then go on to the next one. Diane. Starting out with three similar questions on Brahman and Atman. Uh, the first one is from Shushant C. You have described the process of attaining self-knowledge in Advaita Vedanta as a two-step process. First, the wrong understanding that my body and mind is me has to be quelled, and the self or Atman is seen as the awareness. Secondly, one gains the understanding that myself is no different from anybody else's self, that it is all just one universal self or Brahman. The first step is elucidated by numerous examples that explain how that which is known cannot be the knower, driving us to the ultimate knower or Atman. Are there similar logical inferences that help one gain an intellectual understanding of the second step of how Atmans are not distinct? For example, if I am looking at a yellow leaf, that yellow leaf is the known, and myself or Atman is the knower of the yellow leaf. If, however, at the same time, someone else is looking at a green leaf, the green leaf is the known, and his self or Atman is the knower of the green leaf. Would it not follow that if this specific po at this specific point in time, 
the knower of the green leaf and the knower of the yellow leaf must be two different knowers, and thus the Atmans are distinct and not a common Brahman. And Samrat K also has a similar question, but shorter. I would like to understand how this individual consciousness is related to that of another. How is this Atman within being aggregated as Brahman? I am not able to relate to connecting the individual consciousness to the universal consciousness. And Pata R also asks, Ray, your video entitled, Who Am I? If I am Turiyam, then who is the doer? And more insightfully, who runs the universe? Hmm. So all of these questions have one thing in common. The movement from the individual to the cosmic, from my reality to the reality of everything. You see, the problem is that not only does Advaita Vedanta say that you are pure consciousness, but it also says that everybody else is that one and the same pure consciousness. Our, uh, these two obstacles are there to enlightenment. One is our identification with the body-mind. Now that is not so difficult to overcome, at least intellectually. Um, we can come to see that we are not actually a body. We are not even the mind. We are this witness consciousness. But there is a second big obstacle to non-dual realization. That is this deeply ingrained sense of difference. So we see other people as different from us, other objects as different from us. And when Advaita says, it is all you, it is all Brahman, even if it's all Brahman, that might be understandable, or something we can vaguely grasp at. But if it says it's all you, what it's claiming is that difference is not real. Now, our sense of difference is so deep and so real, to say that difference is not real when we seem to perceive difference. We seem to perceive difference. And you say that this difference is not real, this feeling that the, this is the other. It's not the other, it's you. Um, this is difficult to swallow. This is difficult to swallow. So the question is that, even if I realize myself as this witness consciousness, how do I know that everything is, is me? I am everything. There is this oneness, unbroken, undivided oneness. How? So the first step, as he has said, is that I, I understand. What is the first step? That first we realize who or what we are. I, this individual, I, the inquirer, am I this body, am I this mind, am I this body-mind complex? No. Why not? There are different ways of seeing this. By the way of Drik Drishya Viveka, whatever is an object, I cannot be that. Just as I am not this microphone, it's obvious to me. By the same logic, because it appears to me as an object and I am the subject, when we consider the body, uh, it appears to me as an object and I am the subject thereof. What do I mean the body as an object? It's an object to my senses. I can see it, hear it, I can hear the, my tummy rumbling or my heart beating even in moments of silence. I can hear my own breathing. Um, I can hear it, I can taste or smell it or um, touch it. Every sense organ reveals the body as an object. Object of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. I can think of the body. Here, my body. So the body is an object to the senses, to the mind, and I am the subject thereof. 
subject and object, drashta and drishya cannot be the same thing. And so therefore I am not the body. Not just as an intellectual conclusion. We sort of, we should feel it intuitively. What we understand intellectually, we should also try to see just as the difference between me and this clock. This difference between me and the clock is so so physical, so evident. I don't say that I conceive of the clock as different to me. It, it just feels different, naturally. In the same way, the body should also feel, we should also notice the body as not me, not the, not the witness consciousness. Why do I call it witness consciousness? Because if I eliminate the body from my self-concept, if I eliminate the thoughts, even the thoughts are objects, they are also experienced. Happiness, sadness, depression, fear, anxiety, understanding, non-comprehension, memory, inability to remember, all of these are experienced. If they are experienced, they are subtle, yeah, but they are objects. They are subtle objects. They are definitely much closer to our self-concept, to, to ourselves than the body itself. The body is, is gross, physical. But the thoughts, mind is also object. And because it is object, I cannot be the mind. So this itself is a very great discovery. That I am not the body-mind. Though the body-mind are there. Just as you are the driver of a car and you realize you are not the car. It's the crazy driver who says, I am the car. You may feel one with the car, but you are not the car. And even when you are not the car, you can drive the car quite happily. Similarly, we can use the body and mind, but we are not the body and mind per se. There are many other ways of seeing this. The body and mind continuously changes. And I note each change from babyhood to childhood to youth to middle age to old age. I have noted that which changes and that which does not change, they cannot be the same thing. By the way of Panchakosha Viveka, all these ways we have, we have seen. Panchakosha Viveka is the five layers of the body-mind complex, the human personality. The physical layer, so-called food layer, Annamaya Kosha. The vital layer, the breath. The breath is just one evident... Uh, part of the vital layer. It's like the tip of the iceberg, which we can experience directly. But it works at every level of the body. It's keeping the body alive. Vital layer. Uh, the mental layer. Thoughts. And the layer of the intellect, the, which, which is doing all this understanding and, and analysis. Beyond that, the blankness which you hit, if you try to penetrate and try to see beyond the intellect. The five layers. Annamaya Kosha. Pranamaya Kosha, Manomaya Kosha, Vijnanamaya Kosha, and Anandamaya Kosha. None of them I am. I am that witness consciousness. Another way of seeing the same thing is the Avastatraya of the Mandukya. We have been studying the Mandukya Upanishad. Um, all that I experience in waking, I am the same one who experiences the dream and the dream objects, the body in the dream. I am the same one who experiences the blankness of deep sleep. And I am the same one who experienced the, again the emergence of the waking state. Each state comes with its world and its body-mind. Think about it that way. It's a remarkable way of thinking. Our normal way of thinking is that this body-mind is real and here is the real world and this body-mind falls asleep and then it dreams and then it just stops for a while that is deep sleep and then you come back again. The whole thing is predicated on thinking of this body-mind as the reality but it's not our experience.
your experience as consciousness is suddenly of a state of waking which is coming complete with its own body mind and a world with its own people and problems and relationships and the whole thing disappears and a new state emerges before you the same unchanging light and then that that's called the dream state and that disappears and there's just blankness before you the unchanging light so that unchanging light is you the witness it is called the turiya so this is the first stage which he is talking about not so difficult it's a very great discovery and it's a wonderful discovery but you know the, what the problem is there is still the smell the odor of individuality there we still feel i have discovered a consciousness apart from body mind in this body and mind and the intuition is behind every body mind there must be a separate such consciousness because i see a separate body i clearly intuit or infer a separate mind so there must be a separate consciousness no this sense of individuality this sense of difference it comes from identification with body and mind though we may say now i understand myself as the witness beyond body and mind we may say it we may even understand it but sort of subconsciously under the terrain there is this clinging to this this identification with the with the body mind and therefore we still feel different from others once you even intellectually consider the separation of witness consciousness from body mind what would distinguish the witness consciousness in each body mind why would you think that the witness consciousness in each body mind is different it's like one vast sky godapada in mandukya karika uses this example one vast sky and you have lot of little pots now in each pot a little bit of the sky is there so are are we going to say that each pot has its own sky so does it enclose the sky when the pot is moving does the sky inside the space inside move with the pot the fact is though it looks like that the fact is no all the pots do not actually cut off or demarcate space they are all in space space is not in them though it looks like that when a pot moves if you put water in the pot the pot is moving the water in the pot is also moving along with the pot but the space in the pot is not moving along with the pot it is rather the pot moving through space some people are confused i've seen people who uh, feel no no the space also moves with the, with the pot it's an illusion consciousness does not move along with the body and mind in your consciousness body and mind are moving the body is moving mind is thinking feeling imagining consciousness is not trapped in body and mind it just is fooled into thinking that i am this body mind if you consider consciousness in itself awareness in itself it's not limited by different bodies and minds so this is the example um this is this is the way you argue or reason your way to an understanding of the oneness of all all consciousness similarly for existence the chair is different from the table is different from the space in between the chair and the table uh, table is there space chair is there between them space is there they seem to be different things but when you look, consider chair is space is table is apart from the name table space chair apart from the form table space chair 
the isness in itself you cannot conceive of it it's, it goes immediately beyond conception but what will differentiate the isness it's an ocean of existence before us isness isness is this ocean of existence right now it's an ocean of shining awareness which you are there's no difference there in an ocean there seems to be thousands of waves if when you consider the water is the water really differentiated into thousand waters where is the boundary between the water of one wave and the water of the other is it does it make sense to say water of a wave and water of the other wave or rather this wave and that wave in water it's one vast expanse of water in which appear and disappear many waves it is one vast unlimited expanse of being awareness sat chit satyam gyanam unlimited anantam satyam gyanam anantam which appears to be differentiated the bhagavad gita says avibhaktam cha bhuteshu vibhaktam eva cha sthitam undivided in all beings appearing to be divided how does brahman or the lord exist the lord exists in all beings how undivided like one unbroken mass of water like one one indivisible sky like that it exists but appears to be divided like the little space in each pot like appears to have each wave suppose is appears to be an individual with its own water rather than the water being the reality in which the wave appears this is the way you reason your way uh, from individual witness consciousness to one consciousness in all beings in the 13th chapter of bhagavad gita sri krishna says to arjuna um kshetragyam he says idam shariram kaunteya kshetram ityabhidhiyate etad yo vetti kshetragyam tang prahu tadvidah this body is the field and the one who experiences this body consciousness that is known as the knower of the field now each field is different clearly there are so many bodies each field is different each individual being has a separate field the body even the mind because it is experienced or known but the knower of the field body mind in each is it a separate knower of the field or one this is the question in the next verse 13th chapter of gita sri krishna answers that kshetragyam chaapi mam vidhi sarva kshetreshu bharata and o arjuna in all the fields know that there is only one knower of the field and that is i god so god is the knower of the field in each of us you say i am the knower of the field i am the one who experiences this body and god says that i am the one who experiences this body that means you and god are one and the same i am atma brahma this very self is brahman yeah so there are many examples also this is the way you reason and there are many examples also uh, example of the water and the wave example of sky in different parts they all establish the oneness of existence consciousness um traditionally what is done is the questioner has noticed something interesting that traditionally what is done is when you teach advaita vedanta first with the help of uh reasoning and experience you differentiate the consciousness from body mind why why can you not straight away say all is brahman because the problem is we have already identified ourselves with one little body mind complex 
So the reality is not not uh, evident to us. Right now, if there is no idea of the sky and the pot only thinks of itself as a pot, the sky has forgotten itself and thinks of itself as the pot. First it must be told, you are not the pot. You are not even the water in the pot. Pot, physical body. Water in the pot, the subtle body, mind. You are not the pot. You are not even the water in the pot. You are the space occupied by the pot and the water. And this space is undivided, indivisible in all parts and between all the parts. Above and below, everywhere, one unchanging, indivisible space. That's what you are. So first the process of disidentification with pot and water must take place. And then the idea that it is one reality. Here also, one must be careful how one deploys examples. There is a danger to using examples. Examples, analogies, metaphors, they can point to the truth. But there is a danger. What is the danger? The danger is, when you talk about pot and compare it to the physical body, when you talk about water and compare it to the subtle body, the mind, and then you talk about a space, which is subtler than all of them and pervading everything. It's a good example, but it's misleading because uh, to that extent it shows the existence of three things. Here is a pot, and that seems pretty solid and real. And in that there is some this wet stuff called water. And all throughout is space. And you are saying that the pot is like the body, the water is like the mind, I get it. And I am somehow like consciousness like the space. True, as far as that goes, but it's also true that the water and the pot are nothing different from the space. That's difficult to grasp. It was easy for the ancients because their cosmology was that from space emerges uh, air, from air emerges fire, from fire emerges water, from water emerges earth. For them it was one continuous reality. So what was the clay pot? That itself in a subtle form was the water, that itself in subtle form, form is fire, that itself in a subtler form is air, and that itself is the space. So the space itself appears in, in a sense as a condensed um, water and, uh, and uh, pot, earthen pot. Uh, that it is the same reality they understood from their cosmology. For, for us it seems like three different things. It's not three different things. Use the example to understand the difference of space from pot and water, difference of consciousness from body-mind, and the oneness of space in all parts, the oneness of consciousness in all bodies and minds. Then let go of the example. The next you must see that all bodies and minds are nothing separate from the underlying consciousness. That is what, uh, that's the second step. Then only non-duality. Non-duality of what? non-duality of consciousness is established. There is no second reality. Even the mind, even the body is not apart from consciousness, is not apart from existence, sat, being. Pure being, sat, alone appears as mind and as body. Think of the mind as waves in the ocean of consciousness. Think of the physical body and the physical world as waves in the ocean of existence. And this consciousness existence are the same thing. Um, the first pers uh, questioner asked a question. Aren't we different Atmas selves? Because here is consciousness experiencing, knowing a green object or yellow object, yellow flower. And there the same consciousness knows a green flower. 
here i am the knower of yellow here there is the knower of green aren't they two different knowers so doesn't it prove that there are two different consciousnesses or atma that was the question here uh, a distinction has to be applied there is a difference between the sakshi witness consciousness or atma and knower the two sanskrit terms are sakshi pramata consciousness knower what is a knower it is the same consciousness using the mind and the sense organs and knowing an object so consciousness channeled through one mind using one set of sense organs knowing one object is a knower and the same consciousness shining through another mind using another set of sense organs knowing another object is you are right another knower so they are different knowers knowers are many just as bodies are many um, objects are many minds are many sense organs are many the different sets of sense organs clearly so the knowers are many but behind all knowers is one consciousness gita as i said one consciousness in all beings appearing to be many another example is um, a big pot the example is given in the dakshinamurti stotram a big pot in which um, there is a lamp a powerful like a, like a, an oil lamp shining and the pot has many tiny holes from outside you will see many rays of light coming out many tiny beams of light coming out from the pot um like a chandelier for example but the central lamp is one because of the holes in the pot many rays of light are coming out now you can apply that in two ways one is you can apply that to yourself as an individual same consciousness but there are many holes the eyes and ears and nose and skin and tongue these are the holes through which the rays of consciousness are emanating one consciousness and this body is like the big pot or you can think of all the bodies as the different holes and the one consciousness behind all of them and consciousness emerging as different rays of light through all these bodies and minds so knowers are many correct but behind all the knowers is one witness sakshi and that is brahman that one consciousness in all of us the last question here the last question asked a slightly different question that um um as that that more insightfully the one who runs this universe could you repeat the last one three point uh question you're talking about your video entitled who am i who am i if i am turiyam then who is the doer and more insightfully who runs the universe right so this earlier we were talking about gyata or pramata the knower now the question is about the doer if i am the one consciousness who is the doer who is and you know walking and talking and doing good things and bad things and getting karma and experiencing the results of karma who is the doer and who is the cosmic doer the one who runs not only this body the entire universe i don't feel like that i can understand myself as a witness consciousness i can go so far but i definitely don't feel like that i am the doer or the the controller of the entire universe i don't feel like that that would be nice but i am not <laughs> yeah, but i am not 
I could do probably do a better job than than God is doing, you know, set certain things right in the universe. Um, so yes, here we have to understand in classical Advaita Vedanta the concept of Maya. Consciousness is indivisible. You can't divide it into parts. It's non-dual. There's no second to consciousness, and there are no parts in consciousness. But it's the the principle of Maya, which does some remarkable things. or appears to do it projects the consciousness as the non-conscious you the awareness are projected as the objects of awareness the unchanging is the changing you the unchanging consciousness is projected as an ever changing world and body and mind the blissful the ananda as the sukha dukha the shifting pleasure and pain of this world maya does this what more does maya do it individuates it makes the difference between all beings So Maya has these two aspects: a cosmic and an individual. In Sanskrit, the words are samashti, total, and vyashti, individual. Samashti and vyashti. Maya in totality, when it is associated with consciousness, then consciousness gets a new name: God, God, Ishvara, Saguna Brahman, Paramatma. Maya and a part of Maya, a speck of Maya, associated with the same non-dual consciousness, gets a new name, Jiva. So who's that Jiva? It's you. We are that that non-dual consciousness, Brahman, but limited by a tiny part of 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 Maya. It is like that vast electricity available everywhere, but depending upon the the electric bulb, somewhere you see a vast amount of light in a stadium, maybe blazing forth with light. and maybe in a room with a tiny little bulb somewhere a little flickering light same electricity but now channeled through different capacities of the of the devices of the bulbs similarly maya can be total cosmic samashti or it can be individual then the name becomes avidya or agyana in the case of the totality it is power it is the power of god to create the universe to preserve and control the universe and ultimately to destroy or dissolve the universe back into it into 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 maya itself from maya is projected the universe and in through maya the lord controls the universe that is the doer he is asking who runs the universe it is you yourself but not as this individual questioner you yourself in association with total maya you get a new name ishvara you i mean brahman not the individual being which we think ourselves to be and that brahman itself in association with the part of maya gets uh, a name what is the name of the questioner partha partha you get the name partha um same non dual brahman with an individual aspect of maya you get the name partha so technically the definitions समष्टि अज्ञान उपहित चैतन्यम कॉन्शियसनेस प्योर कॉन्शियसनेस एसोसिएटेड विथ टोटालिटी ऑफ ऑफ माया और अज्ञान इज कॉल्ड ईश्वर एंड दैट इज पावर ओमनिशियंट ओमनी प्रेजेंट ओमनी पोटेंट गॉड ऑफ रिलीजन गॉड वी वर्शिप इन डिफरेंट रिलीजन्स दर इज ओनली वन एंड दैट्स बिहाइंड दिस एंटायर यूनिवर्स रन्स दिस यूनिवर्स बट द सेम कॉन्शियसनेस associated with the part of maya vyashti agyana upahita chaitanyam consciousness limited by 
individual part of Maya becomes the Jiva. And there are many, many Jivas. Because there are many, many parts of Maya. Innumerable parts of Maya. Maya can be subdivided. Consciousness is not subdivided. Consciousness is one and non-dual. Maya is one, but also divisible into many. Not theoretical. We experience it every day. When we go into deep sleep, into the blankness of not knowing. That is the, uh, that is the seed form. That is Maya. Uh, that is Avidya. The individual form of Maya, which is our own limitation. Yeah. So this is what divides into cosmic and individual. One question might be, how strange is it that the same thing in totality, that one little thing which can bind me to samsara and make me think like that I am an individual and go through samsara, more of that should be worse. But when all of it is added together, it becomes the power of God. So Sri Ramakrishna explains it very nicely. He says, the cobra has the totality of poison in its mouth, in the glands. And is not affected by it at all. But it's the power of the cobra. Even a tiny bit of that poison can knock out a frog or a poor mouse which becomes the prey of the cobra. So a tiny bit injected into another being, it knocks it out. The totality of that poison it cannot harm the, the cobra. In fact, it is the power of the cobra. So that's a rather ominous example. But uh, Maya is the power of Ishvara. Ishvara is called, Ishvara or God is called in Sanskrit, Maya Adhisha, the Lord of Maya. And we are called Maya Adhina, in the domain of Maya. That's why we are in this such poor shape. And Ishwara is lording it over all of us. <laughs> Advaita Vedanta tells you that your reality is not the Jiva, not even Ishwara. Ishwara and Jiva are one. God and the individual are one in that absolute consciousness which is beyond Maya. That is not affected by Maya. That is what we are right now. To realize that, that is Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Yeah. So that is the, the goal of Advaita Vedanta. Alright, so this is the, uh, the, these three questions have this in common. The difference between the individual and the cosmic and how do you reconcile it, how do you realize it? Um, so this is a question from Lynette M. I listened to your YouTube dialogue with A.H. Almas on science and non-duality. You mentioned private spirituality is not spirituality. What do you mean by that? Thank you. Yes, it was the SAND 2019 conference near San Jose, I think, in California. Um, yes, I said private spirituality is not spirituality. At the beginning of spiritual life, often uh, it may seem that we are looking for our own liberation, our own emancipation, freedom from suffering. So all our practices seem to be private practices. That means my prayer, my meditation, my study, my understanding, my spiritual pursuit. It doesn't really seem to be connected to the world outside, except in Karma Yoga, where you are actually serving God in all beings. But your philosophical studies, your meditation, your devotion even, seems to be pretty private, your own thing. Very soon, however, as we go along in spiritual life, we realize a maturity comes upon us and we realize leaving others out of our lives uh, is a selfish thing to do. That 
I will be spiritual. It really doesn't matter what's going on with the world. That does not work after some time. One begins to realize, why not? I can be spiritual. I can stay in a cave. I don't. I don't care about the world. It won't work because this very attitude that I will be spiritual and I don't care about others. This attitude is deeply rooted in identification with one body and mind. What you are trying to overcome in Vedanta and see that you are one existence everywhere. Or even in yoga, that you are not this body and mind, your consciousness apart from Prakriti, Purusha and Prakriti, separate. Whatever you are trying to do in, in uh, spiritual life, in Bhakti, I don't care about this individual existence. I am just devoted to God and I, and I am full of love and surrender to God. In every case, what you are trying to do is overcome the selfishness imposed by identification with one body-mind. And private spirituality, quote-unquote private spirituality, is what deeply ties you to this one body-mind. So there is a contradiction there. So very soon you realize that one must care for others. It's not enough that I have peace in meditation. What about society around me? Is there systemic poverty and oppression and discrimination and suffering around me? Because we are one existence, to ignore that and say, I can be peaceful and joyful and noble and elevated in my own little room or my cave while the world may um, go to destruction, it will not work because you are connected with the world. So that's why I said uh, private spirituality uh, is no spirituality. It's one, something one realizes, though one starts in that private mode at, at the beginning. That's why um, you know, Swami Vivekananda gave the motto to the Ramakrishna order, Atmano Mokshartham Jagatitayacha, for your own liberation, for the welfare of the world, and for the welfare of the world. Why both? Why not just your own liberation? So, and the welfare of the world, they are not two different things. It's the same continuity. Your own liberation and the welfare of the world are connected. Jesus said, um, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy might. And you could have stopped there. But he also said, and, one more, love thy neighbor. So these are not two different things. They seem to be two different things. I can love God and don't care about my neighbor. This is no. Because at, at, in a fundamental sense, they are one, one reality. The Lord you love and the neighbor whom you try, are trying to ignore. No. So these are two expressions of that same underlying truth. Krishna said to Arjuna, whole essence of Bhagavad Gita, Ma manusmara yudhyacha, contemplate me, always think about me, God, and fight the battle of light, life. Why and fight the battle of life? Just think about God. Why, why are you bothered about fighting the battle of life? Arjuna didn't want to do that. No, because they are not two different things. You are trying to separate God from life. But life is an expression of God. The universe is an expression of Brahman. It's like trying to separate the pot from the clay. The ornament from the gold. You can't do it. It's one reality. So that's why private spirituality is not, much, is not very spiritual. There's a question from a young person in India, Mimansa B. I'm now in class 12 in India. I wish to seek spiritual enlightenment and can't focus on my formal academic school syllabus. And truly, I don't want to. At least, I wish to realize the true knowledge of life. 
So I'll finish class 12, but after that, what should I do? Where can I join you or any other organization? Hoping to hear from you soon. Hmm. Class 12 would, in India would mean he's about 17 or 18 years old. Um, so that's young. <laughs> yes. Um, cannot concentrate on your studies, especially when exams are closed. That's when we become very spiritual. <laughs> and it happens. It, it, it's, it's a real thing. Um, the mind plays tricks on us. So, when you go into spiritual life, if you become a monk and search for God, for God realization, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's, it will require lifelong patience. So if I do not have patience to wait and complete a degree, an examination, though it's unpleasant, though I'm not interested in it, I have taken it up. I must have the patience and the fortitude to complete it. Otherwise, how will you have the patience to hold on to a lifetime of austerity and simplicity and service and meditation? You say, no, but I love that. I want to do that. You love that now. Your mind tells you. After some time, you may not love it. And after some time, again, you may love it. Through those periods of loving it and not loving it, are you able to persist? Or are you a slave to your moods? So when very young boys come to the monastery and say, now I want to become a monk. The first thing that senior monks ask is, is your examination close by? In most cases, they will say, yes, how did you know? Said, oh, we know. What will happen is, if you go to a monastery, a Ramakrishna Mat nearby, wherever you are in India, if you go, you inevitably the Swami there will tell you, finish your examinations, finish your degree, get the, you know, finish your uh, class 12, get a college degree, go to college, get a degree, though it may be unpleasant for you. Now there are some cases, I'm not recommending that, but there are some cases where because of great vairagya, dispassion, I have just no interest in, in uh, studies. I want to become a monk and realize God. And it's, it's not a false thing. It's, it's a very good, it's a very high and good impulse. But it has to be controlled and channelized. Under the impulse of that, that vairagya, there are cases I have seen myself. Young boys have run away and come to the ashram and, and absolutely take, will not take no for an answer. I want to stay here and become a monk. So in those few rare cases, you know what happens? They will say, yes, all right. So you are a brahmachari now, a novice. So you will have a tuft of hair, wear a white dhoti and all. Now you think, ah, now I'm going to be a monk and realize God. But the Swami in charge will tell you, now, what do you do? What's, what's your work? Now you go back to school as a monk and, and finish that. That's exactly what happens. I've seen a number of cases. So in, in the Ramakrishna order, we have schools and colleges. So you, the, the novice is put back into college and finish your degree and then come back and not come back. You're still a monk. Even while studying, you're still a novice, but you have to finish your degree. So that, that's what I recommend strongly. The deeper reason is any big project you take up in life, it's always a good practice to complete it. I can share. I had a similar experience. I was doing my MBA. And it's two years. At the end of the first year, I thought I just had enough. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to become a monk. Because I had made up my mind after finishing the MBA. It's a long story. But after finishing the MBA, I'm going to become a monk anyway. 
halfway through, I went to our main monastery on in Belur, on the Ganga, and the president, my guru at that time was the president at that time was my guru Swami Bhuteshanandaji. So I bowed down to him and I said, I want to become a monk. He immediately said, he used to speak very slowly in a drawl. He said, what are you doing nowadays? I said, I'm studying, Maharaj. What are you studying? I'm doing this. Uh, how long will it take to complete? He said, one more year. Is it good to leave things halfway? So he was gentle. He didn't say, go back and study. Some monks would do that. He was very gentle. And remember, uh, I think I was 22 years old and he was at that time 92 years old. <laughs> so uh, he said, it's good to leave things halfway. I realized he did not want it. That's the most he would say. He would not force things. So I had some doubt, which this young boy might have the same doubt. My doubt was, but Swami, if uh, if I do not give up the world now and become a monk, may maybe there will be obstacles, maybe something will happen and I won't be able to become a monk over the next one year. Things could happen. Will there be a problem? Will there be an obstacle? I don't know how, but he, he said with absolute assurance, there will be no problem. There will be no problem. And that somehow convinced me. He had that power. So I bowed down immediately. I had come ready to, at that moment itself, stay back in the monastery and never go back home, never go back to school, to college. So I went back. And I finished uh, the, the coursework. I still remember the last assignment I submitted that very day or the very next day. I took a, a train to the ashram where I was going to join the order and become a monk. And amazingly enough, through an extraordinary coincidence, when I went into that, that ashram, Deoghar, I saw it was busy. There was a, I had visited that ashram earlier. It's generally not so busy. A lot of people around. I asked, what's going on here? I had just gotten up the rickshaw, come to become a monk. What's going on here? He said, oh, don't you know, the president of the order, Swami Bhuteshanji, is visiting this ashram. And today is the last day. Tomorrow he goes back to the main monastery. I said, it's amazing. One year ago, exactly one year ago, he had said to me, there will be no problem, you join the order after one year. So I went and bowed down to him, and the first thing he and the other monks introduced me, said, this boy has come to become a monk, please bless him, Swami. And the president of the order, Swami Bhuteshananji, looked at me and he said, in Bengali, we have, I've already said everything to you. <laughs> we have, I don't know if he remembered or how he said that. But the point was, um, he, his advice was, and I, w I am very glad today, uh, after more than 25 years of monastic life, I'm very glad today that um, um, I listened to him and finished what I had started, my studies. So my recommendation to him would be that you finish your studies and you get in touch with the ashram right away. If you, uh, you can take advice from them, from the monks there, uh, read books, but complete your studies. We go back to the question of consciousness. Okay. Um, the first question, there's two. The first one is from Sono K. How can a formless entity, which is consciousness, be the material cause of a thing that has form, and not only that, but diversity of form? 
and from Lakshan N. Can you please explain how Brahman in Ramakrishna's Vijnana Vedanta is beyond cause and effect if the universe is a real manifestation of Shakti, which in itself is real? Also, how is Nagana Brahman just another aspect of God to be realized, similar to the forms of God like Shiva, Kali, Vishnu, etc.? How can God even be beyond Nagana Brahman when we consider Nagana Brahman as limitless and without quality? Okay, heavy duty questions. Uh, yes. So the first one is, how can something like Nirguna Brahman, the absolute existence consciousness bliss, which is beyond form, how can it be the material cause of a universe with form, which itself has no form, how can it appear to have form, not only one form, such a bewildering, vast diversity of forms, all the things that we see in this universe now, how is it possible? That which is completely formless and beyond all forms, all qualities, all attributes can appear as this extraordinarily diverse universe, from the microscopic subatomic level to the, the macroscopic universe with um, you know, quasars and galaxies and all, a tremendous variety and this huge thing spread out before us. How can this happen? Well, look at it this way. In Sri Ramakrishna's simple language, water itself does not have any form. But when it freezes, it appears to have so many different forms. Ice takes many, many, many different forms. There's no limit to the forms, uh, types of forms that ice can take. But they're all that same formless water. Um, I remember I had a long argument with a dualistic Swami, with a Swami from a dualistic sect. Uh, so they, they considered that God has a form. And this Brahman without any forms, they don't accept that. A very interesting argument. The argument went on for three hours. And I won't tell you who won, nobody won. But his point was, it's an interesting point. That you may say that water has no form, but whenever you see water, it has a form. Whether it's the form of ice or the form of the bowl in which you put it, the form of the glass in which you put it, there is some form. Even the river has a form where you put water or the ocean has a form. So, you never experience water without a form. How can you say water is formless? Just as the level of example. Then we will go to Brahman and God later on. So whenever you experience water, it is a form. Now what will you say to that from an Advaitic perspective? The answer is in the question itself. Note, when you experience water, it has a form. Of course it has. What is experiencing? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. To see something, it must have a form. Otherwise, how will you see it? To hear something, that also has a form. Each music, each word, each language, each call of a bird, there are, dif are differences between them. So that's a kind of form too, a an auditory form, let's call it that way. They are all distinct. Yeah. Similarly with smell and with taste and with touch, or each food you taste is different. So that, there is a difference between them. And so when you taste food, there must be some taste, otherwise how will you taste it? So when the reality is experienced, it is definitely experienced with form. To experience itself, already there is the division of experiencer, 
experienced object and the instrument of experience knower known and the mode of knowledge in sanskrit pramata prameya and pramana prama pramata the knower prameya the object of knowledge pramana the instrument of knowledge once you are using these definitely there will be forms definitely there will be there will be differences without differences knowledge is not possible but notice one thing in the water example itself so this is what i asked him in the water example itself you see whenever we experience water as a form now let me ask you what is the form of water itself which forms there are many forms which form the glass form the bowl form the teardrop or the the raindrop form the dew drop form or the flowing river form or the iceberg form which form is the form of water if it is any one of those forms then it cannot be the other because that is the only form of water if you say all of those forms are the forms of water then of water itself notice it all of those forms cannot exist together they are all contradictory if it is um, cylindrical like a glass and if it is circular like a bowl the two cannot be together it's either this or that so the one which takes the cylindrical form in a glass that one takes the circular form in a bowl that one takes the drop form in a uh, dew drop or tear drop that one itself must be free of cylindrical form circular form tear drop form it must be free otherwise it cannot easily move between these forms it must be free of form so that swami kept silent after that <laughs> but he has a point the point is this if you want to experience god you need a form that is the science of all the forms and images you see in hinduism why so many forms ganesha and krishna and rama and shiva and each of them in different forms multiplicity of forms half animal half human forms or the form of fire the form of space that those are also forms in which shiva is worshiped as uh, the fire as space as water so all of these forms they indicate the one which you are worshiping actually has none of these forms that's why it is able to appear in all of these forms it is only the formless which can appear as multiple forms if the if it is by nature it has a form it will appear only as that form and nothing else it cannot it has to give up its form and then then if it gives up its form and the form is intimately connected to its existence then you have to say it has gone out of existence itself the pot when it takes a form then only you call that clay pot when the form is broken it's still clay but it's not a pot anymore because the form of the pot and the name of the pot and the existence of the pot was tied to that form once that form is gone you can never call it a pot anymore but the clay remains whichever form it is the potentiality for all different types of pots and jars similarly the formless brahman that is the only one which can appear as the multiple forms of this universe not only the worldly forms but also the divine forms in which sadhakas mystics have experienced god shiva and kali and durga and saraswati and lakshmi and uh, and vishnu in all the forms of vishnu and in different ways or moses experiencing it as the burning bush in different ways 
different forms, different experiences, one underlying reality, which in itself is free of form. How is it done? That's the question. Again, we are back to Maya. It is through the, that, the, that the extraordinary power of Maya, the formless can appear as a form, the unchanging can appear as changing, that it can appear at all. Look at the word, appear at all. We'll leave it at that. We have a, a question from Mary A. Oh, just a minute, hold on. I think the last question, the second part of that question was asked. Oh. Um, so how does, uh, how can Nirguna Brahman be experienced as Shiva Kali? Can you repeat that one? Yes. Can you please explain how Brahman in Ramakrishna's Vijnana Vedanta hmm. is beyond cause and effect if the universe is a real manifestation of Shakti, which in itself is real? Also, how is Nagana Brahman just another aspect of God to be realized similar to the forms of God like Shiva, Kali, Vishnu, etc.? How can God even be beyond Nagana Brahman when we consider Nagana Brahman as limitless and without quality? Yes. That's a really tough one. One thing you have to realize is when we talk about Sri Ramakrishna's Vijnana Vedanta, there is a certain thing which is new in that approach. It has to be. As the newest avatar, Sri Ramakrishna, gives a new perspective on spiritual life, the Vijnana Vedanta. But there is also an old aspect to it. It is based on Upanishads, it is based on Shankara's Advaita Vedanta, but it's also an extension of that. There is something new in that approach. Now, in Vijnana Vedanta, the details are not worked out as yet. It's new. Shankara Vedanta, today, has had the benefit of a thousand, twelve hundred years of post-Shankara Advaita development. Attacked fiercely by the, its dualistic opponents. So Shankara Vedanta had to come up with answers. Great philosophers from the dualistic schools, Vishishta Advaita, Dvaita, they attacked Shankara Vedanta. Ramanuja comes up with seven objections, Saptavidhanupapatti, seven objections to the Advaita concept of Maya. Each of them powerful, and you have to answer that. And when you do that, your system develops. A system emerges. So that process has yet to take um, uh, place in Vijnana Vedanta. Vijnana Vedanta is more is actually also not another type of Vedanta. It's more like a metaphilosophy, something underlying all the different schools of Vedanta. So yes. Nirguna Brahman is fully accepted by Sri Ramakrishna. And at that point, um, it is not the material cause of the universe. The material cause of the universe, I'm, they say, Upadana. Let me do a little bit of classical Advaita Vedanta here. Upadana means the material out of which something is made. So, clay is the material out of which a pot is made. So, clay is the Upadana, the material cause. Um, the material cause can be of two types. One is a changing material cause. So milk is changed into curd or yogurt, actually transformed. It, the cause is transformed into the effect. Or the seed is transformed into the plant. Some change actually takes place. Yeah. So this is called a changing material cause in Sanskrit, parinami upadana karana. Parinama means change. The material cause changes into the effect. 
It was a seed, now it's a plant. It was milk, now it's yogurt. There is another kind of material cause, which is not re really a material cause. You know, what happens is the cause itself appears as the effect without changing. The rope appears as the snake. The rope has not changed into a snake. The sky appears to be blue in the morning, appears to be red in the evening, and appears to be black in the, uh, at night. But the sky in itself is neither black nor red nor uh, blue. It appears like that. It has not changed itself into blue. It has not changed, the space does not change itself into red color. No. It's because of the atmosphere and scattering of light, it, it appears like that. So this is called vivartha upadana karana. Vivartha means apparent transformation. According to Advaita Vedanta, um, the only way Brahman, the Nirguna, the, the uh, Brahman appears as this universe is the Upadana Karana, is the Vivartha Upadana Karana. It does not change. It's not really a changing uh, cause, like the seed changing into the plant. Brahman has not changed into this universe. Existence, consciousness, bliss, Brahman remains as Brahman without any change, without any possibility of change. And through the agency of Maya, appears as this changing universe. So isn't it a cause? It's not even a cause. Not only does it not change, it's not even that unchanging cause, it's not even that. Because the universe has no real existence. If the effect had a real existence, then you could say that there is really a cause. If there is no real effect, then the cause is not really a cause. The example they give of a pot in Aparokshanubhuti Shankaracharya says Ghatadrishtanta, the example of a pot. We really feel that the clay has been changed into a pot. But when you examine the pot, you find it's through and through clay. Inside, outside, top, bottom, whatever you, you hold, weigh, it's the clay. We are ignoring the weight of the water or whatever is involved there. So that's the clay. In that case, what new thing is there? apart from the clay in that pot. New substance. You might say shape is there, but is shape a substance? How would you know? Because if it's a substance, it could exist apart from the first substance clay. If it's a new substance, it would be a second new thing which has been produced. So you can keep the clay and show me the new substance called pot. But the pot name is not a thing. The pot form is not a thing. It depends on the original substance clay. It has no existence of its own. So no new second thing has been produced. If no new thing has been produced, there is no new effect. Then how is clay a cause of anything? And it, we find it troubling because we actually see a potter making with great deal of effort making a, a pot. But to say that nothing new has been produced it's only a change in name and form and use. So in, from that perspective, the clay is not really a cause. At first it appears to be the material cause of the pot, but from that, if you analyze it this way, it's not really a material cause of anything. Similarly, Brahman is not a material cause of the universe. Now why am I saying all this? Sri Ramakrishna entirely accepts it all. So at the ultimate level, Brahman alone is real. So does he accept the world as false? Yes. But then he also will say, it is Brahman alone who has become this world. 
So Brahman alone has become this world and there is no world at all. So Brahman is not a cause of this world. These two are not contradictory statements. If there is anything new which has come out of Brahman, apart from Brahman, that Sri Ramakrishna will never say. That there is Brahman, there is God, there is my Divine Mother and apart from my Divine Mother a new thing called the world has been created. At no point does he ever say this. What he says is, you go into a house and you climb the door and the stairs and you go to the roof. You leave everything behind. When you climb to the roof, you realize what you left behind is made of the same concrete and bricks and cement and mortar with which the roof is made. The roof is the absolute. Is the, he says, Nitya and Lila. Nitya means the eternal and Lila means the play. So that which is the eternal, the play also belongs to that. That alone is playing. The eternal is, is, remember, play means change will be there. You will say, how can the eternal change? Yes, at the level of play, that which is eternal appears to change. The, the careful listener will catch me at this point and say, ah, you said appears to change. Really unchanging and appearing to change, they two can coexist. The screen does not change. Movie changes a lot. But the movie is not real. There's an earthquake or a fire which you see in the movie or a flood. Now, is the flood, fire or earthquake as real as the screen? No. The unchanging, unaffected screen can happily coexist with all sorts of false or movie earthquakes and fires and um, it's in fact the unchanging nature of the screen which makes the possible makes it possible to have movie earthquakes and fires and floods. But unchanging screen and a real flood cannot coexist together. The unchanging screen will become will be destroyed by a flood or a fire or an earthquake, really, if it exists. So apparent world and real unchanging Brahman can happily coexist together. And that's Advaita Vedanta. The careful listener will catch me and say that. Sri Ramakrishna insists not only God is real but this world is also real. It's not a real God and an apparent world. The real God and real world and they are one. That creates terrible logical difficulties. Sri Ramakrishna does not care about our logical difficulties. <laughs> so we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, at least from our intellectual point of view, you see Advaita Vedanta is watertight. It's logically very elegant. But there are other philosophies which can easily accommodate Sri Ramakrishna's point of view. Uh, Kashmiri Shaivism is one of them. Where the ultimate reality called Shiva or Parama Shiva um, is one and non-dual and eternal. And through a process of vibration actually creates a real world. And while creating this real world of limitation and problems and suffering, still remains as that ever blissful Shiva. Advaitin will immediately catch. How can it be both really changing and unchanging at the same time? How can it be both eternal and temporal at the same time? One can be real, other can be appearance. That's Advaita Vedanta. Brahman is real, world is appearance. The two can exist together. Like a screen and a movie. Like the dreamer and the dream. They can exist together. Like a real rope and a false snake. They can exist together. But the ro it is really a rope at the same time and really a snake at the same time. No, 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 no. Uh, 
But Kashmiri Shaivism is there. It's, it's a um, highly developed and very sophisticated system. And uh, it accounts for a lot of the things which, in fact, Sri Ramakrishna has said. One of the great philosophers, Professor Chakravarti, once told me that to understand uh, the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna in depth more than Advaita Vedanta, it is Kashmiri Shaivism you should study, which will you can be, you'll be able to relate it directly. So let me leave it at that. Uh, do we have time for one more question? Let's take one more quickly. This is the question from Mary. I was raised in the Christian <coughs> tradition. I recently heard your teaching on Ashtavakra Gita and read The Heart of Awareness and have become an avid student of Vedanta. Now Jesus' teachings make sense to me in the light of Vedanta. Is it possible for a person to be pulled into Vedanta or Hindu spirituality by no conscious effort on that person's part? I feel like I am pulled into it like iron to the magnet. I am amazed by it. I could use your guidance. Yes. You see, the problem with certain approaches to spiritual life that one size fits all, this can create problems. So, Christianity, by and large, or Islam, or Judaism, or in our own traditions, Vaishnavism, Shaktaism, these are devotional approaches. You must start with faith. God exists, and you love God and surrender to God. But again, depends on your mental makeup. For some people, it works wonderfully. But for some people, you can't get over that initial hurdle that you have to believe in this dualistic, theistic system. It's difficult to swallow. And such mental makeup, often they are attracted to the non-dual teachings of Advaita Vedanta. It seems to be telling you, speaking directly to you, talking about your own experience here and now, instead of forcing you to believe in something which the books say. So, today we are in a situation where all of these teachings are openly and easily available. It is because of her mental makeup that she responded immediately, so directly and viscerally to the teachings of Ashtavakra. Ashtavakra is the highest statement of Advaitic truth. And many people whose mental makeup is that of a jnani, who will immediately relate to that. Those whose mental makeup is not of a jnani will find it outlandish and, you know, what they say here in America, far out. <laughs> yeah. So yes, it is very much possible because of your internal makeup, makeup it's not that you're attracted, you're a Christian being attracted to Hindu teaching, it's because Vedanta is so broad, uh, is so vast, and like I call it a full spectrum approach to religion. If you are basically theistic, devotional, there is a lot in Vedanta for you. There are the schools of Dvaita, Vishishta Dvaita, Shuddha Dvaita, Vedanta, very devotional, and they will attract you. If you are analytic, if you are this direct experience type of person, Vedanta has something for you. The Advaitic uh, approaches, Ashtavakra, for example, will immediately appeal to you. So that's why you, are, you feel pulled. Today we are in a situation where all these things are available, so um, there is no restriction. Now, what do you do in such a situation? Swami Vivekananda's approach, I think, is the most wholesome one. He said, use all four yogas in your life. The Ashtavakra approach is the jnana yoga, direct experience, 
the philosophical approach, direct approach. Have that in your life. But also have the devotion. Could be to Krishna, to Jesus. The bhakti approach. We have a heart. We have the ability to love. We also have the ability to have faith. We believe so many things. So let's just make a beginning. It may seem lifeless to you. But also hold on to a bhakti approach. And active, service-oriented, serving the society, taking care of the needs of others, uh, karma yoga, and internal peace, quiet, serenity, the raja yoga. All of these approaches um, should be there in the life of a spiritual seeker. Now, as she says, that the traditional Christian approach might seem lifeless to her. And she can understand Jesus better uh, from an Advaitic framework. And I agree. I also feel the same way. Uh, but the traditional bhakti approach, for example, though it does not seem to work for me, it's not the fault of the bhakti approach. It is just the way my mental makeup is. So it's always good, even if a particular approach, devotion or meditation or service seems lifeless to you at present, does not seem inspiring, uh, it's good to do that. It's good to do it even mechanically and it helps in our spiritual development. So what I would say is all the books, all the teachings uh, of Advaita Vedanta are uh, easily available to us these days. So study, contemplate, meditate on that. You will find joy, peace and illumination in that. At the same time, keep up devotional practices. Keep up um, your service to humanity and keep up meditation. You know, awareness, sitting quietly, serenely. So on that beautiful note, let's end today's Ask Swami session. Wherever everybody, you're all there, stay safe. I pray to Sri Ramakrishna, to the Holy Mother, to Swami Vivekananda, to bless all of us, to protect all of us. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu